Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Edward Zwick's new biographical drama, Trial by Fire. The film tells the tragic and true story of Cameron Todd Willingham, who was convicted of an arson-related triple homicide in 1992. During his 12 years on death row, he forms an unlikely bond with Elizabeth Gilbert, a Houston playwright who battles with the state to expose suppressed evidence that could save him. In addition to Trial by Fire, Mr. Zwick's directorial credits include the feature films Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, Love and Other Drugs, Blood Diamond, The Last Samurai, Courage Under Fire, Legends of the Fall, Glory, and About Last Night, the movies for television Having It All and Paper Dolls, and episodes of the series Once and Again and Family. He earned a DGA Award nomination for his 30-something episode Accounts Receivable, Michael's Brother and won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Dramatic Specials for his 1983 movie for television, Special Bulletin. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Zwick spoke with director Max Winkler about filming Trial by Fire. During their conversation, Mr. Zwick discusses how he came to direct the film, his special connection with editor Steven Rosenblum, and how shooting digitally allowed him to suitably capture Willingham's time in solitary confinement. Hey guys. Hey Ed. Hey Max. Happy to be here with you. Yeah. It's um, ironic because um, I probably wouldn't be in the DGA if it wasn't for your movies. Um, I I started watching your movies at a very young age and I remember um, is this intended to make me feel good or bad? I'm just amazing. Okay. You're still okay. making great movies. What are the odds? <laughs> and I, um, I'm honored to be here, Thank and you. I'm honored to talk about this movie and to be here with you guys. And um, I, I have some questions. Please. I want to start with the ending because it's I'm sure fresh in everyone's mind, and it's still fresh in mine. Um, you made a very specific choice, which Mm -hmm. to me feels like the only choice, which was to show the entire nuts and bolts process of what it means to put somebody down. Yep. And I want to talk about, was that always in the script? Was that one of the first things you thought about when it came to it, et cetera? Well, I mean, it was our intention once we decided what the shape of the movie would be. The idea being that the audience might feel... um, might condemn Todd Willingham, as did the people of Corsicana. So that having done that, having taken that position, they then become complicit in what happens. Mm. Because it was a rush to judgment, and they sort of just, you know, identified him as the other. And, uh, you know, the absence of, 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 of a real trial or due process has a consequence. And I think too often we have a very casual attitude about what the death penalty is. And I think so as to be forced to have a more realistic one, I felt obliged to show all of it. It's amazing what you're saying about um, the judgment because we have a guy here who does a lot of things that are condemnable to some degree. Mm-hmm. 
He's obviously in some form verbally and potentially physically abusive to his wife. Questionable father. Questionable spotty history. And yet those are the things that are putting him on trial with lack of any real evidence to be put to death. And I'm, I'm so... Um, I was so satisfied by his... By the portrayal you did of Willingham because there was no gloss to it whatsoever. And yet you can still be a person who can go through a change, which is why the movie works, because you see him change subtly, even though he has that sort of little flare at the end when he's looking at the glass and he sees Stacy. But you can be all those things, and yet that still doesn't mean that you need to be put to death. Yeah, I mean, had it been otherwise, I think there would have been the real possibility of it seeming sentimental. I think one of the things that drew me to the story was the thing that you're articulating, is that, um, you know, despite all of those things, it made even a better case, I think, for what the movie aspired to talk about. Yeah, it doesn't, to me, the movie works so successfully because of that, because you are wrestling with these questions about um, morality and what do people deserve, and you see, and I know, the, the way that these prisoners are treated and how hard you have to work to scrape with your fingernails for any sense of humanity, whether it's through the drawing and, and then, thank God, through Laura's character. Well, I, I mean, I think something I thought about a lot when I first started working on the script with, with um, Jeffrey was the notion of fairness um, because, you know, fairness is a metaphor for all of us, because we all deal with unfairness of a certain kind. Um, and that could be disease, it could be a car accident, it could be anything. Um, but I also felt particularly drawn to this notion of injustice, that this is a time, at least for me, I think for a lot of us, that we are particularly sensitive to that as an issue. I mean, we have, we have an unindicted, you know, uh, conspirator, uh, a, a being a predator on top of the chain at this moment. Um, I think we are aware of the disproportionate um, spread of income in the country. There, there's any number of things that make us suddenly and increasingly aware of injustice. And I felt that, that this was the perfect opportunity to, to, to talk about it in, in microcosm. After, after, after watching the way you shoot the final scene and knowing that there was no real evidence whatsoever to put this complicated yet innocent of the arson and murder of his three children's. Um, after you, they put Willingham down and then you show the Rick Perry section at the end credits and then the, the applause that he, I don't, I don't think Brian Williams thinks that that's what the response is gonna be and the, the, the raucous applause he gets and then you, you cut out the image of Rick Perry and it's just the applause over the end credits and I've, the hair on the back of my neck stands up over that because that's a huge population of America that are celebrating that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I felt it was important to cont to contextualize the story. We had put it just in this little, you know, small bubble, but in fact it feels to me indicative of something much larger. Mm -hmm. And when I look at those guys there and, and the first, there's a shot, because it's video, and it's a little vague at certain point as to, you know, is that, um, you know, I know I see that's uh, him, but is that, Who's that, Carly Fiorino or Meg Whitman, and who is that? Is that, you know, and I see Mitch McConnell, and I see, you know, so many other people in my mind who are there, and I, I felt it was important to somehow 
place this issue, which has become a political football. We have a we have a president who wanted who took out a full page ad in the New York Times to put the Central Park Five to death before they were even in, before they were even tried and in fact uh, exonerated. He's talking about death to drug dealers and treason and death. I mean that, that this is a legitimate and I'm hoping an increasingly important issue because the ever since Gavin Newsom has done what he's done with the moratorium, all of the all of the current presidential candidates have signed on to suggest that they might too. So could that possibly bubble up as a real issue in you know within the election year? In I I mean I think the performances in this movie across the board, and we'll get into the specifics of casting, are astonishing from, from the one-line players to the, the favors. Yeah, we should applaud that because they're um, stunning. Yeah, the, the act, listen, I, that's the best part. And I, I, Blake Lewis, who plays the snitch, I think it was his first movie, and um, McKinley Belcher, who plays Ponche, he had done one small thing before, he's done something now bigger. Um, uh, I think the, Chris Coy playing the guard. I loved his is, change at the is end. Just fantastic. He's on um, he's on the deuce right now, but unrecognizable, I suspect, to those who might know his work. Um, and Emily Mead playing Stacy, always good. One of our most underrated actresses. Yeah, and, also and, on the deuce. And that part could have easily become so um, uh, sort of two dimensional. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was that's one of the great joys of this kind of movie. But but also a through line through your catalog of work as um, a, a writer, director, um, producer in television and movies has always been the performances breaking gigantic stars from Brad Pitt to Denzel to Matt Damon and Courage Under Fire and Jack O'Connell gives a really brave, beautiful performance in this and um, yeah. 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 And I want to speak about how, how when you're filming that final scene how many takes are you doing? How much is storyboarded? What do you know you're going to need to do? And well, how do you keep him in that mindset? You know, it's, it's funny because I, I do do a lot of preparation before a scene, not necessarily storyboarding, but in notes and in shot ideas. And I, as we got closer and closer to this scene, I found myself resisting it. Was it, was it scheduled for the end of the movie? Very close to it. And I, none of us wanted to go there, wanted to do it. We were shooting in a real prison, an abandoned prison, but a prison nonetheless. We had done all of the incarceration stuff. I think everyone was very sensitive to Jack going into that scene, him doing it. But for all of us, it was a, a very difficult thing. We had done our homework. We knew it was supposed to be. Um, but, you know, the thing about his performance, including that last moment, which, ironically, David had not reported in his article, David Grand, that wonderful journalist for, you know, who wrote the article in The New Yorker, um, but we had, in fact, the transcript. When he yells at Stacy, it wasn't in the David Grant. Yeah. And I felt that that was somehow indicative of Jack's performance, his willingness to do that as well, not to be self-protective as so many actors Because that's are. who the guy is. He's filled with this rage and anger for the person who didn't do everything he yeah. believes she can. And he's also somebody who is dealing with the forgiveness of the sins of the past. And... I was going to ask you about that because in the David Grant article, it just says the 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 God stuff. Yeah. And yeah. to me, that is him in a nutshell. And seeing him, the image of seeing him strung up like that, well, it's you know, barbaric. And that's how they do it. They stand you and then lay you down. But, but um, you know, the thing about Jack is that we really, 
something you'll be interested in, I think, having to do with shooting digital rather than film, because this I've only done one other movie on digital, but in this particular case, I was able to go into that cell with Jack for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, even an hour, and let it run, and he wasn't obliged to present anything. We would one night do some work on his face and say, all right, now we're going to take as long as it takes to do that stuff, then the next night do more, and the next night do more, and let him discover what that stuff might be as he spent more and more time in solitary. So, Because I had a question about the solitary confinement section. Right. Was that, you, you basically just answered it. My question was, how much of that did you find in editing, and did you just roll and roll and watch him actually start to go kind of nuts? Yeah, we rolled and rolled and rolled, which I'd never been able to do, because you know, an actor with a, you know, if you have a 400-foot mag on, they've got three minutes to find something, or even you have a 1,000 feet. You know, and this was different. And I could just be in the little small room with him, with a little Mophie, you know, um, uh, and see what happened. Obviously, we had places we wanted to go. And the question I was asking myself directorially is, we've all of us tried to describe nightmare. And there's a whole lexicon of what nightmares might look like. But what is it to be in a room for, for you know, 10 hours? What is it to be in there for 10 days? What is it to be in there for 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years? What, what does that do and what does that look like and feel like? And so... It looks that, like, I think, banging your head against the concrete wall. Well... And that, the, the visceral sort of bookend of that mm -hmm. is... Um, what is he actually banging his head against? Oh, no, you... Obviously, we prepared... Was there a pad? We prepared a piece of wall that we then, you know, painted and we... We, I stuck a little tube in his, you know, hair for the bloodline to drip down. And I love that effect. And, you know, all of that. But yeah, we knew we were going to get there at the end. And in the midpoint of the movie, a little sort of ray of sunshine sort of mm -hmm. comes in the form of probably Lord Dern, who's in the middle of a of a sort of renaissance of of just <laughs> yeah. making everything she touches shine. And she's been doing it for. Years and years. Yeah, she's, it's not a secret to those of us who've been watching her work for no. so long. And my, my, to me, the, the quintessential Laura Dern scene in this movie is her and the snitch. And sort of it's a seduction scene in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. Watching her use the truck and use her charm to get what she right. wants out of this person. And how did that work with someone so experienced and someone so inexperienced? Well, she's, you know, Jack is a volatile personality. And you know that because you've just made a movie with him. Sure do. And, and... Uh, I think, but for Laura, I think I might have had a harder time. You know, Laura has, she not only has two nutty, great, wonderful parents, actors, both. She's been married to others, had affairs with more, and has been around uh, for this since she was maybe, you know, acting at 12 years old. She understood um, how to be there for him. Mm. And she was extraordinary, extraordinarily nurturing to him in the process as Elizabeth might have been to Todd in the actual movie. So there's some meta there. And, and to me, what's, what's beautiful about her performance is that as someone, an actress who's capable of going to such sort of eccentric extremes, this is a very, very internal, very quiet performance. And the, the scene that I love most, and oh, I should, I should just back up. I deliberately kept them apart until they started working together. I did all of his stuff, I did all of her stuff, until they actually met in, the, in, those, in that cell, they hadn't really spent any time together. Wow. I wanted that to have the feel of discovery. I wanted them to, as two actors, have that 
awkwardness and discomforting thing. So for me, the moment that just tears me apart is when they start talking about God and she says, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, and I see her, it's that great actor who, for whom, you know, great actors are, um, they're oddly self-contained, I think. But you can see her wrestling with the right. moment. That's right. And usually they keep us out to some, right. point, some degree. And then there's that moment when they open the window and they let you in. Mm. And that to me is that, is that moment. Their chemistry continuously, with the exception of a couple of fantastical things you do of him in her kitchen and them in the dream, they're separated through a pane of glass. Mm-hmm. And their chemistry is off the charts. You know, that's one of those words, chemistry. You know, it's isn't really just really good writing and one hundred percent because we have no idea of what could I mean, actually be happening. You know, chemistry. Right. It's like you know, yes, and I've been on the the end of that where I've been on movies where the two actors love each other and we can't make it work in editing, and I've been on another version where exactly. the actors hate each other and people are like, they must yeah. have really been in love. Exactly. Um, but what's interesting is. Um, Every, I want to get back to the casting. Are those people found through local casting in Atlanta? No, no. um, There there, are a number of casting agents who I really love more. I mean, I've I've worked with with several great um, casting directors here. When looking for those parts, new faces and people that I don't really know, I tend to go to New York. Most of those folks are stage actors as well. David Wilson Barnes. um, And I just tend to, I don't know, maybe because I don't know them, that I have no preconception of what they're supposed to be. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm usually delighted. That's one of the parts of the process that really I look forward to. One of my um, favorite um, sections of the movie is with um, Dr. Hurst. Yes. Um, the fire expert. And um, I'd never seen, I've, I've probably seen that actor a million times without knowing it, but I, I immediately went to my IMDb. I want to know yeah. what your relationship is with Jeff well, Perry. Well, Jeff Perry, he's one of the great actors of our generation and oddly unsung because he was a founding member of Steppenwolf. And as everyone in the Steppenwolf company went off and got famous, like John Malkovich and Gary Sinise and Laurie Metcalf and everybody, Jeff was the last one to leave. He stayed there. He's still taught there. He then... Recently, he had a great success now in this show called Scandal. Mm. Um, and nothing has made any of us happier than to see people, you know, chasing after Jeff, trying to get his autograph. Um, but but he, um, he's been one of my best friends, actually, because I'm from Chicago and I've known all those guys since we grew up together. And I literally had only, when I thought about the script, I had one person in mind and I just picked up the phone and I said, would you come? He flew in, got in at midnight tried on the beard, showed up on the set at 5.30 in the morning. We did the two scenes. He was on a plane that night at 9 o'clock to get back to shoot his TV show. And one of my favorite lines of the movie is um, when he says, you know, he can use all the good karma he yeah. can get. And that's, to me, an example of brilliant writing and directing because I don't need to know anything else about him. I know that he's these pro... these these experts and we've seen shows like the staircase the the documentary and these murder shows and people who are willing to volunteer their time pro bono are you know few and far between right and and, and of course that's what todd was not be- because what the, the the greatest problem with the criminal justice system among so many is poverty 
and class. That's what I love when you connect him and Ponch together. Which no, traits, people don't do you that. You realize that, yes, of course it's race and that's it's disproportionate, but the race part is as much about poverty as anything. The inability to hire adequate representation experts, for instance. You yeah. just watch, you watch him get steamrolled in the trial mm -hmm. and, and how underrepresented he is and how that watching injustice firsthand happen on somebody who was kind of like this feral beast like Jack and Willingham and 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 you're sort of putting together how unfair it is and and how helpless it is and it's almost like he starts to read through this book and there's words he doesn't even understand they never he never had a chance right no I mean the jury was out 45 minutes I love the reaction. I want to ask you about that. The reaction on Jack when the lawyer's like, we'll be here for you know, a while. It's going to go for days. And then you have this unbelievable reaction on Jack when it says the jury's reached a deliberation or whatever. He has, and you'll, you'll have seen this too, he has great stillness, which is very interesting. Um, mm. and, and in certain moments, even you can write upon his face right. in a way. Uh, and that I think that's what happens. Because that reaction tells me this is a guy who knows what's yeah. about to happen. Yeah, that's right. And you cut out right at the right time, and I just... Right. Were you, were you and you worked with a cinematographer I really um, admire, John Gulisarian. Were you guys, because like all your movies, even if they're steeped in reality, and sometimes bleak reality, they, all, they always look well, they always mm -hmm. look great to mm -hmm. me. And... And you managed to do that where it wasn't this sort of washed out, depressing sort of cinematography. You kind of let the locations tell the story as much as possible and you still sort of... You know, there's, there's some subtlety to what we tried to do because um, indeed what, the, what that, that place where, where, where Jack and Laura, especially where they would be speaking, in reality it would probably just be fluorescent top light period. And we wanted there to be some variety of sense of either time of day or weather or intimacy as it changed and as that plastic seemed to disappear. I think mm. we used the reflections more in the beginning to suggest distance between them. And then we start to polo them and get them out of there in some way. They're still there, but much you know, subtler. Um, you know, John is, is one of these guys who is telling the story with me. He, he, he's, the, the conversations are as much about what is the arc of the character? What is the meaning of the scene? As much of that as it is about, you know, what should the light look like? Because he wants to first understand my intention emotionally, then we can talk about, about light. And same for your editor, I'm guessing. Well, my editor is a guy named Steve Rosenblum with whom I went to film school a thousand years ago. He cut my student film and has cut everything I've ever done. Um, my daughter, uh, at a young age, came to sit in the cutting room with us. I think she was about 13 or something. And she came back, and, and we were having dinner that night. And my wife asked her, what was it like being there in the cutting room? She goes, they're not working. They're just laughing and having fun. And I think that, in fact, I make movies as an excuse to be able to sit in a dark room with him for four and five months. I can't imagine. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's He's fantastic and, and, and obviously a friend. And is he cutting while you're shooting? Definitely. And, okay. you're, and you watch an assemblage? You know, he doesn't believe, and I don't really believe in such a word, an assemblage. I think that's a, a first word. cut? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, cut. I think 
my way of talking is writing or sh and shooting the film, and his way of answering is cutting the film, and then I respond it, and he responds, and we're like two old, like the Sunshine Boys, yelling at each other. Um, what? Are you on crack? Why would you make that cut? You know that kind of thing. But but it 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 gets there faster, and you get to see where you are, and you can. He's all, utterly willing to change it. Has there ever been anything you guys have really in any of your movies that you've really gone to the mat on that you think always? Is there anything famously that one of you gave up on? Oh boy. Um, oh gosh, there are so many things that, that, that aren't in movies that, that might have been there and, and, and ruined them utterly if one of us hadn't sort of relented. Uh, gee, I'm trying to think. Uh, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, the whole third act of Legends of the Fall was sort of torn apart. We had a preview. We had a preview of Legends of the Fall the first preview where we took it to an audience and we had done something in the first act that people started to giggle about inappropriately. And we thought we had just had this movie nailed. And we looked at each other and literally just said, we're fucked. And then it went straight downhill from there. And all we did was to go back in, in fact, after that and redo the, this moment in the first act. And it went then through the roof because I hadn't sort of betrayed the audience in some particular right. way. And I think it probably the fault had been mine, that I had insisted on something Usually is. That, that he has held over my head ever since. Yeah. Do you, um, did you and John Glossarian reference any other movies that you were watching that were sort of inspiring you before you went and did this? No, no. I, you know, I, I don't tend not to do that. I like to, to talk about, I like to talk about like, painting or or still photography what were some of the what was some of the stuff you were talking about for this well with this there's 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 been remarkable still photography about incarceration there are just great books um particularly a couple of books about death row and and so we had those i don't remember the name of the photographers but they're i love um taryn simon's book about um for the, that she did with the Innocence Project of people going back to oh, the... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And in fact, some of those books also had extraordinary quotes from, from I think that one did too, of, of the guys talking about right. what their experience had been. And I obviously met and talked to a lot of those guys who had been on and also been off. There's also one shot I wanted to ask you about. I love... I keep going back to the end of the movie because it... Sorry. When the curtains close... And it's sort of almost, it feels almost like you're theatrical. Yeah, yeah. But in an amazing way, we see Stacy and then it's sort of like, and that's all. Like, that's what it is. Like, show's over. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, the, an interesting thing that, that, that for me was um, how the whole edition of, of some of the magical realism that you um, evoke mm. uh, came about. Because Jeffrey first had the idea of, um, a way of dramatizing his, the, his, the, her letters getting to him. I love her him going in to his house. Kitchen, yeah. And then we then began to build on that. But having done that, having introduced that voice of, of magical realism, the introduction of his daughter was something that we really struggled over. And then, because I'd read a lot of Todd's letters, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, who's the woman, you know, the real woman, participated with us and gave us all of Todd's letters and her letters and talked a lot about him, about their relationship. Uh, in his letters, he talked a lot about his kids and he spoke, he wrote about them in the present tense mm. and he would celebrate their birthdays in his letters and he would do drawings for them. It's art. And 
when we decided to do that, it, you don't know if it's going to get really hokey. And I will say to Jack's credit, he was very anxious about it and wondering if we're going to do something that's going to be really a violation of the reality of the, of the, the character. And when that girl appeared in the cell, I mm. saw something just come over him. But I also realized that I had written a line or so for her. And immediately I knew that that would be Naf. And we cut her speaking. That somehow in dreams, speaks. people we see, I'm not sure we actually hear them. Right. Or maybe there's just a word or something. But I, I felt it was her silence, ironically, that made it. But what I also did deliberately was to do all those sequences in camera. Mm. It's not visual effects. In other words, uh, you see the whole the whole prison cell, and he moves over to the to the wall. And as he moves into the wall, she slips in and goes and sits on the bed. And as the camera pans back, she's there. Similarly, when he's he's in his cell later, I felt that that to do those in camera, almost theatrically, was not to make them magic but strange in some way yeah nothing about them feels hokey they feel and and the, the final moment of her touching his hand after he's gone kills me yeah that was again one of those things that just occurred to you as you're you know because we shot that later because that i felt those that relationship had worked that then that would be the you know the and are those scenes improvised between jack and and no. the girl that was no, written they were written was there any improvisation in the film with Laura or anything? Yeah, Laura and Jack did a lot of improvisation that we didn't use. When he tells her to stand and turn around, was that improvised? Ah. Because her no. reaction feels so real well, and good, weird. That's, that's a great moment because he was seductive with women and he does try to do that. And that's a, very, that's a trope, the jailhouse romance with right. someone seducer. And when he did it the first time, I thought that Laura was a little bit um, too accepting of right. it and all i said to her was i said you know you should know you should get a calm on a shit so it's her he says he says uh, give me a twirl and she goes no. it's an amazing reaction yeah and, and that's her wow but but i had asked her to do something other because i think he, she, he, she was a little susceptible right he is very charming he is yeah um i'm so thrilled that we got to do this yeah and i'm so thrilled this movie exists um because not only is it an important document it also as all of your movies that are always about stuff it works as a story which sometimes people only can do one and um i i just i, I think it's exceptional and to to live with this movie for as many years as you have and to take that home with you after set and i i think it really paid off well i was thinking of one thing um which is it was a long time. It was it was nine years ago that we were so ten years ago we optioned the script and we couldn't get the financing and we finally managed to and and had to suddenly jump it. Um, but I kept thinking about that um, that quote that Obama kept using, which was the Dr. King quote about the arc of um, the moral universe bending toward justice. The real quote is the arc of the moral universe is long, <laughs> and it bends toward justice. So you know this isn't done yet either. This whole issue. Thank you for making thank you. it. And thank you, thank very you guys much. for coming. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
Also, if you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.